Well, I'm so excited to be able to uh, open up God's Word and share with you this morning what I think is going to be a very, hopefully, defining and challenging message when it comes to really understanding the truth of Easter. If you've got your Bibles or your iPhone, iPad, you can go ahead and open up to John chapter 8 is where we're going to focus today on a story that uh, that may not be like the typical Easter story, but it, uh, I think the, the message of the story will be a great reminder today of, uh, of what Easter means to each of us. We're in this series on hope. Hope is greater than a lot of things, and we've been learning that hope is greater than our temptations, our fears, and our failures, and we've been kind of busting some myths when it comes to hope. And I, I know one of the first myths that I always thought about hope was hope would be something that I experience one day in the future. Like if I can just make it through this life, then one day it'll be better. Like one day I'll be in heaven, or one day at the... You know, whatever is waiting for me on the other side then that'll be great. And that's what we think hope is. And we, we talk about that kind of hope is actually kind of discouraging, isn't it? To think, well, I've got to, live, I've got to have the worst life possible here, so maybe something will happen. And so we, we defeated that myth and said, no, hope is something I can experience every moment of every day. We can live out of hope. The, the second myth that we kind of took on was this idea that Hope meant that we would be delivered from all the trials in our life. That all of our difficult circumstances, when we came face to face with a trial, that if we really had hope in God, He would take us out of that and put us into something good. So all bad would kind of go away in our life. And, and the truth is, we know that's not the case. We've all had friends and families that have battled with diseases or had tragic events happen in their life, and we've prayed for them to be healed, and it hasn't happened. We've seen things in our life that we can't explain that are just bad circumstances that happened to us. And so it's not that we are delivered from bad, but hope is this, is that we get to journey with God in the hope we can carry hope through the circumstances. Not that we're delivered from them, but we walk through them. And then last week we talked about this myth that, that hope is only as big as my biggest failure. Like my failure will ultimately define me. Where I have screwed up the most will be my defining factor. And we really pushed back on that thought last week that there is nothing that hope cannot overcome. And really, we grow and we're made strong through our weaknesses and through our failures. And God can use those to accomplish amazing things in our life. And so today we're going to look at this other part of hope and we're going to look at this, try to layer of understanding to help us even get a clearer view because the truth is this. If hope is something we can experience today and it can sustain us through trials and circumstances and it can keep us from our failures from defining us, then what else is there? Right? I mean, if that's the case, if all that's true, like I can have it today, I can live out of hope and it doesn't define, my failures don't define me, then then what's keeping me from doing that? And I think it boils down to one word that we all struggle with, and the word's guilt. Guilt. We all struggle with this. There's this one word that keeps hope stifled in our lives, and it's guilt. What, what is guilt? Let's talk about this for a minute, because we may all have some different understandings of what it is. Guilt comes into our lives when we believe or realize that we have crossed some line in our life that we know we shouldn't have crossed. Right? And so I'm not even talking, I'm not even right now talking about God's law, man's law. I'm just talking about in our own lives, we feel guilty when we have drawn a line and we know we shouldn't cross that line 
and we step over it. And we begin to feel guilty, but I shouldn't have done that. I should not have had that extra donut. I should not have went out and got that second bagel. Right? I mean, that's we, we draw this line and we start to feel guilty because of that. And we, we set these lines up in our life like, where well, I'm not going to do this. And we do it with our children and our family. Like, don't do this. I remember growing up or, uh, when PJ was first born and we first had children and PJ started sleeping in the big boy bed. Right? And uh, we would say, PJ, do not get out of the bed. Like, don't come past here. And like he was, okay, okay. And he would lay there and Three minutes later, all of a sudden, we'd see his little head peep around the door. He was like, I'm just thirsty. And we'd get him some water and don't cross this line. About three minutes later, here we come again. I just want you to read to me. You know, I make us feel guilty. Like, we haven't loved it. You know, but we do that, don't we? I mean, we set these lines, but then we cross them. And that's where guilt comes from. And that's what happens. Guilt, we, we can receive it from, from a few different sources as well, Right? We can receive it from ourselves. We can, we can lay guilt on to ourselves. I should not have done that. But others can lay guilt on us too, right? I mean, we can have people accuse us of stuff and be like, how dare you, or you did this to me, and they start laying guilt on us. But we can also receive guilt from an authority figure, right? I mean, somebody who is placed into authority over us, whether it's government or in a home, in a parent situation, or even in a spiritual idea of God as the authority over us, we, we can receive guilt when we cross that person's line. I, I've had to stand in front of a judge once in my life. And it was not a, it was not a fun feeling. Uh, I think I've told part of this story before. I got, as a teenager, I had my license a few months, and I got caught doing 72 and a 40. I was, I was going pretty fast. And uh, I got... I didn't just get a ticket. I got taken before the judge in a month or so. And uh, that's not a good feeling. Standing before somebody who I know really at that point held my life in his hands. Because like, I'd heard all these things like you could have your license suspended to your 21, all this stuff. And I'm like, how can a teenager live without a driver's license? You know, and, I was, and uh, he was very kind to me and all this stuff. But I remember that feeling of being under his authority and, and feeling guilt there. And so guilt can come from a lot of different places. So what does this have to do with hope in our teaching today? Well, I believe for many of us sitting in this room, and I know this is part of my background growing up of what, how I began to understand Christianity, is that for many of us, the primary characteristic we usually associate with Christianity is the idea of guilt. Right? I'm guilty before God, so I've got to do something to make that right. I remember many times in my life being felt, being made felt guilty for not doing enough as a Christian. And I was motivated out of guilt. And what I want us to do today is to come believe that guilt literally is not at the core of Christianity. That is not what Christianity is about. Instead, it's about hope. Think about it for a minute. Think about this cycle we get in when guilt is at the center of what we believe from a spiritual standpoint. If guilt is the, the key, then, then we get into this cycle, don't we? Like, I do something bad, God punishes me, and I have to do something good to get into His good graces again, and then what happens? 
I do something bad again. He punishes me. I got to do something good. And we just start this cycle. It's like lather, rinse, repeat. Right? Lather, rinse, repeat. I mean, I don't have to do that too much anymore, but that's the way it was. I remember reading that on shampoo bottles. Like, when do I actually stop? Like, it just keeps going and going and going. And it's that idea, this cycle in our life. And doesn't that become very tiresome? becomes weary. And we become to believe that Christianity is this guilt-based religion, this set of rules that must not be broken, and if they are, we have to do something to make it right with God again. Think, think about where this kind of religious thinking leads. It creates an environment where it's up to me to make things right. So, so what do I do? I try to do good works. I try to not get God mad at me. I try to do more good than bad. I try. I know I'm going to be punished for my sins, and so I need to do something to make it up. And maybe when I die, if there's a God and I'm standing before Him, I will have more good than bad, and He'll let me in. What a horrible thought. Because what if I got there, and I was just one deed short? <laughs> what if He would have said, if you would have just let that lady on the subway? <laughs> you know, instead of like... Close the doors. There's no room, right? If you wouldn't have nudged by that person on the on the escalator that wouldn't get out of the way on the left, and like if you walk on the walk on the left, get on the right. You know, just excuse me. You know, if I would have helped this lady across the street, if I would have done one more thing, it would have tipped the balance in my favor, and that that would be horrible. That, because if that was the case, then I'd be like, God, tell me exactly how much each thing counts. Like, you know, so if I do this, how many points do I get taken off? And if I do this, how many points do I get so that I know my, where I, my balance sheet is? And that's not what the God of the Bible or Christianity is all about. I'll be honest. If this was the case, if this is what this religion was, I, I would run the opposite way. This is not what I would give my life to. This is what not what I would spend my time teaching others to embrace. We have, there are many religions that teach that, and this is one of the things that make Christianity very unique and different. It is not based on us creating a restoration to God. It's God restoring us. It's Him doing the work. And, and here's where this leads in our life. And, and I want you to, some of you may be even on this journey somewhere. So if that's the case, and we embrace Christianity as a rules and guilt-based religion, the first thing I'll start feeling is anxiety. I get anxious. Am I doing enough? Have I done enough today? Have I ended the day in the positive? You know? And so you're checking that. And you start to get anxious. Like, man, I did, I was, did not have a good day today. And then you start, I didn't have a good week. I didn't have a good month. And they start tallying up. And you're like, please don't let me die now because it wouldn't be a good time for me. To, I've got to do some good things to get in this anx, anxious spirit. But then it leads to this. It then leads to anger. I kind of get angry at God. Because I mean, God, why do you make it so hard? Why do you make these rules that are so tough to follow, and yet you say if you follow them, then I'm good. If I don't, I'm bad. And I would get angry. And then here's where it would lead me, and this is where I think many people in our culture are today, is they would grow apathetic. They'd be like, look, the, the game's kind of rigged. I can't win, so I'm just not going to play. And they're like, okay. You know, God, if that's your rules, that's fine. I'm just going to do whatever, and I'll live by my own set of rules because I've already lost. And they grow apathetic. And that leads to an agnostic or atheist type of thinking because then you go, well, if there is a God, I can't know Him. And, and maybe there's not even a God. 
Because why would a God who people say is love would create a system like that? And I would walk away from God. I, I understand that. I understand how people would get to that point of view if all they viewed Christianity as is this new set of rules to live by and it's a hard set of rules. When somebody says, be holy as God is holy, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm going to fail. We have these ideas that we challenge our thinking. A religion based out of guilt does nothing but condemn and separate us from God. That's what a rule and guilt-based religion does. And this isn't just my thought. Paul, an apostle in the Bible, wrote about this in 1 Corinthians as well. And I'm not going to read this passage to you, but basically Paul, if you don't know who he is, he was a guy who was a Roman citizen, educated, eloquent guy. I mean, just an amazing man who spent the first part of his life hunting Christians and persecuting and killing Christians. He didn't buy into it. And then he had a life-changing encounter with Christ. And his life turned so much, he didn't just say, okay, now I believe. He then became the most outspoken and vocal person for Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, he's writing a letter to a church, and he basically says, look, if none of this is true, if Christ really didn't rise from the dead, if He's not the source of our salvation and it's up to us, he basically said this, it's not only sad for us, we're to be pitied among people. That's the way he said it. We're to be pitied the most among everyone else if this is not true. Like, this would be a horrible way to live if it is not really founded in Christ and it's up to us. And so I love the fact that he says it's, it's not that it's just a bad religious system. It's something that if you embrace this, it's, you're to be pitied. It's hopeless. If good works, good deeds, and a proper philosophical way of thinking is what you think Christianity is, you're wrong. You're wrong. And this kind of thinking goes against everything we celebrate today in Easter. It goes against the idea that Christ came, lived a perfect life, died willingly on a cross for our sins, and then rose again. Because if, if it's up to what I do, there's no need for any of that to happen. There was no need. If by my own hands, I could restore and get rid of my guilt before God, there was no need for Christ. There would be no need for this celebration today. But when it is up to God, when it is up to Christ, then it is imperative to understand and embrace what we celebrate today. And here's what we often do. We often take something simple and we make it complex. Don't we? That's what, we, that's what we've kind of done with Christianity. The simple fact that God has provided salvation for all mankind, and we're like, no, 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 that's too easy. Let's add some stuff to it to make it a little more difficult here so that we feel like we got a part in it. I remember growing up, I used to help my brother. I, I hate working in the yard. That's one of the things I love about living in New York. I don't have a yard. And uh, nothing, I, I absolutely love that. My brother offered to hire me on summer to help mow lawns uh, in the neighborhood. And I was like, sure, I think he paid me like five bucks an hour or something like that, you know, slave labor, you know, pretty much. And so anyway, I really had never done much. He puts me on this riding lawnmower, and I thought, this is fun, this is cool. And so I get on this riding lawnmower, and Jade, my brother, didn't really explain to me how to work it. And so literally for about three hours, I'm driving around this yard, 
driving around, and I feel like I'm not doing, accomplishing anything. There's no grass. Like, what is doing? And finally, my brother comes back and he says, what are you even doing? I was like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm driving around. He was like, the yard's not cut. He's like, did you actually engage the blade? And I was like, how do you do that? Like, I had no clue. So for three hours, I had just been wasting gas driving around the backyard. And my one thought was this, am I still getting paid for those three hours? Or, you know, but a simple task of cutting the yard sometimes can be complex if you don't understand how it works. And that's what Christianity is. We have to understand how it works. And so today I want us to look at this idea of how hope overcomes guilt. So if, if Christianity isn't simply a religious system based on guilt, then, then what is it? And, and how do we get past this guilt? Because I want to be clear today as well. Guilt is a real thing. I'm not saying that our guilt is minimalized or trivialized. Or that it just magically disappears. If you look around the room today, we probably all are carrying a little bit of guilt with us for something. I mean, I, I think about you know my life, and you go this, this deep sense of guilt that I have sometimes. I'm like, man, I don't, I don't love my wife or kids the way that I'm supposed to. I don't forgive others the way I'm supposed to, and instead I carry bitterness and pride. You know, I let anger and selfishness cause me to diminish others and elevate myself. I allow greed and jealousy to make me want what is best for me and what is worse for others. I like lust rule my life in a way that others become objects to be used for my pleasure instead of unique creations of God. I fall short of not just God's standard for my life, but even my own standards. And I feel guilty. I feel guilty. So how does hope overcome that guilt? There's a passage in Matthew that says this. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says this interesting phrase. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a picture I want you to see. PJ, we put that up. When you talk about a yoke, it's not, it's not how you cook your eggs. It's not like over easy. This is, this is a yoke. And uh, you've probably seen it before. Where people literally carry burdens. And they would, you know, how much they could carry. And that, that's a yoke across their neck. And what Jesus is saying here, look, if you follow me, this is, I'm not burdening you down. I'm not making your life more difficult to accomplish. I'm actually making it easier. So how does he do that? Let's look at this story out of, uh, out of John chapter 8. And so let me give you a little background before we jump in, and we'll, we'll end with looking at this story. John chapter 8, uh, if you've got it in your Bibles, it, it's right at the beginning of uh, Jesus and his disciples, and literally all the people, all the Jewish nation, had come to Jerusalem for a festival. They call it the Festival of the Booths. It was an opportunity to come and celebrate the harvest, and it was also a remembrance of the exodus out of Egypt. So it was a great celebration. And so they would come, and uh, about midway through the uh, festival, Jesus decides to come to the temple and begin to start teaching. And here's what Jesus starts teaching. He starts teaching the way to be restored to God is not by guilt, but by grace. Not guilt, but grace. And this was an incredible new message that the Jewish nation was hearing. And literally the whole nation was there. Maybe not in that one spot, but they were. word was getting out. Like there's this guy teaching different than everybody else. His yoke is easy. His burden's light. We don't have to do a thousand laws 
to be restored to God. Now, who do you think was not happy with that? The religious leaders of the day. They were not happy at all because he was, he was basically busting up their party. He was breaking in and changing the rules, and they didn't like it. When he would come in and say peace with God through grace instead of guilt, they would say our whole livelihood is based on people feeling guilty. You can't take that away. And he said, I'm not worried about your livelihood. I'm worried about people living in connection with their Creator, their God. And so Jesus had kind of really, this first day, had created quite a scene. And when we start in chapter 8, it's day 2. And it says that morning Jesus began came to the temple again ready to teach. And can you imagine maybe the excitement of that morning? Like people were like, what is going on? Like round two is about to start, right? I mean, Jesus is going to teach again. What are the Pharisees, what are the religious leaders going to do? What's he going to say today? And this is where we pick up uh, chapter 8. So let's look at the first few verses there and kind of the setup that the Pharisees give to Jesus. It says, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they had said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now I want you to understand, they weren't happy, just happened to be walking to the temple that morning and looking and go, Oh my gosh, there's a woman committing adultery. Let's go grab her and bring her to Jesus. This was a setup. They, they were trying to create an opportunity where they were going to paint Jesus into a corner and make him show that he was just like them. They were going to bring somebody that was absolutely guilty, no doubt about it, and say, condemn her, just like the rest of us. And they're going to paint him in a corner and basically try to shut him down. I'm, I'm not excusing her sin. She could have easily been somebody, a, a prostitute or somebody with a very low moral standing and I'm not trying to excuse her behavior. But what I'm trying to do is expose the motives of those that were bringing her before Christ that day. They most likely set her up, set that situation up so that they could drag her in front of Christ. Their motives were incorrect. And they wanted to expose her guilt so that Jesus could see her guilt and then He must condemn her. They really thought they had set the perfect trap. Right? They had set it for Jesus out there. No way for Him to get away. The problem is they just didn't know Jesus very well. Because Jesus does an amazing thing here in His response. Look at verse 6 through 9. This they said to test Him, that they might have some chain charged to bring against Him. Jesus bent down, wrote with His finger in the sand, and as they continued to ask Him, He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more He bent down and wrote in the sand. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus over and over again displayed one thing, that he had amazing wisdom. You, you, can't, you can't paint Jesus into a corner. You can't. I mean, Jesus knows a new way of thinking, and that's what he did here. He basically turned the tables and pointed the fingers back at the accusers of this woman. 
I, I don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand. I wasn't there. That's not recorded in some other part of Scripture. Most people believe that he probably wrote different aspects of the law that he would write in that were actually condemning to the men that were accusing her. So if she was like, look, she's caught in adultery, he may have wrote, you know, do not covet. And they go, oh, I, I coveted my neighbor's stuff this morning. Or, you know, do not lie. Oh, well, we just set this woman up. You know, we kind of lied about the situation. So he started writing the law in such a way that it was condemning toward these men. And he turned it and pointed it back at them. And, and these men literally took the stones that they had in their hands and ready to k- kill her and stone her and dropped them and left because of the guilt exposed in their life. And what I love what Jesus does here, and this is what I want us to catch in this moment, is there is no one sitting in this room or even all throughout history that is without guilt. That we haven't sinned, we haven't fallen short. Jesus didn't ask these men to leave, though. They saw their guilt and they left. What did the woman do? She saw her guilt and she stood before Christ. She she was called to Christ because she had seen grace in His eyes. Where these men, all they could be overcome with was guilt and the law and they went away from Christ. Our guilt causes us to do one of two things. It causes us to draw near to Christ or to run from Christ. That's it. Well, we'll do one of those two things. We will run to the grace of God or we'll be so overcome by our guilt that we'll run away from His holiness. That's what guilt does. And we see it happen right here. They literally had to drop their stones and walk away. And what we see here too is this. Is God is the only true judge. It's not up to us. We don't have the right or the calling to be the accuser of the brethren. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, that term, accuser of the brethren, is given to one person, and that's Satan. It's the enemy of God. And when we begin to judge and accuse other people, we are literally taking on the role of the enemy of God. That's not our job. It's not our job to be the accuser. Our job is to be a funnel of grace and mercy. Just as we we have received forgiveness, we are to express forgiveness. And that's what God was doing here. And the story closes here with three incredible statements from Jesus that I want us to see. And we'll close with this. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one. Lord, and Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. I I love what Jesus does here when he says this. Where are they? You know what he does? He removes the labels. He removes the labels that other people put on us. I'm sure while they were dragging her before Jesus, they were calling her names. There were people using names that I would never repeat in this setting. And I'm sure those were being branded into her soul. And Jesus said, where are they? That's not who you are. Whatever guilt is causing you to say about yourself, whatever guilt people are heaping on you and they are labeling you as, that's not who you are. That's not you. Maybe that's sin or struggles that you have, but that is not you. He removes the labels. Isn't that incredible news? 
that I don't have to walk in here and be defined by my sin. I don't greet people this morning and say, hey, here's my good friend Bob the luster. Right? Here is Susan the gossip. Joe the greedy or Betty the liar. You know, I mean, that, isn't that great that we don't have that on our name tags? I mean, I don't know what would be on your name tag, but we probably would want to flip it around this morning so nobody would see it. But Jesus removes those labels. Where are they? That's not you. There's forgiveness for you. Guilt is taken away. Because then what does He say? Where are they? Do they condemn you? But then He says these three words. Neither do I. Neither do I. And that's Jesus relieving guilt. This statement is even more powerful. Is He saying, look, they don't... They can't see you that way anymore. That's not you, but I want you to understand something. That's not the way I see you either. That's not the way that your Creator sees you either. He doesn't see you based on your sin. He loves you and has incredible grace to pour out on you. Your God, your Creator, is not disappointed in you. Instead, He loves you and has made a way for your guilt to be turned into hope. And how does he do that? With this last phrase. When he says, go and sin no more. And this is where Jesus restores hope. Now, did she probably go and sin again? Probably. She probably fell short again. But here's what Jesus was saying. Don't live out of this failure. Don't let this moment be your defining moment. Leave it here. Leave the guilt here. And instead, walk in the hope that you can go and do this no more. Walk away from it. And that's the amazing thing I've found in my life. The more I embrace God's grace, the easier it is to lay aside sin and challenges and the traps of Satan that come my way. It's easier to live in obedience. God's Word said it is His kindness that leads us to obedience. It's His grace, it's His mercy that leads us to obedience. Not His judgment, not His power. It's His kindness. And I imagine as she began to walk away that day, she, was, she had been surrounded by these men that came with stones to throw at her. And she had to leave and walk past these stones that were literally going to be her instrument of death. And she had a couple of choices. She could walk free and just keep going. Or she could maybe figuratively do what some of us do. She could gather up those stones and carry them with her just in case she messed up again. And she needed to, she would let guilt begin to come back into her life. And that's the problem, and it's where I want to close today with many of us face. It's maybe not the fact that we could believe that God could forgive us or even others could forgive us. But sometimes we can't really allow ourselves to forgive our own selves. And we keep feeling the guilt ourselves and we carry it. And until we can honestly believe that I can be forgiven, I can receive hope, then it's hard for me to receive hope from God. And what do we do? We pick up stones and we start carrying them around. these, These probably were not the uh, stone, size of the stones that they were going to throw at her. 
but I didn't want to order those from Amazon. <laughs> so uh, I ordered the. But, but here's what we do. I mean, I, I've done this in my life all the time. I'll be like, oh, I messed up. And, you know, I'm okay right now, but, but I'll just keep these for later. You know, in case I mess up again, uh, I, you know, I'm going to learn from that. And I start filling up my life with stones. And I start feeling guilty about this. And that, not, you know, I'm okay, but I, what does this do? This makes me go back to where we started. Right? That it's up to me to do something. And this gets us back to thinking that it's about good works. If I can just do something, then eventually I can get rid of all these and we just keep putting them into our pockets and we carry them around. I'm not going to put all these in because I don't want to I don't have that many pockets. But I can already start to feel the weight of this. And many of us walk daily carrying guilt. And I want to ask you to do something today. Would you believe and have hope that Christ can forgive and take these away? You don't have to carry them anymore. There's hope for you. This is not who we are. These rocks, don't they're not my instrument of death anymore. They're they're reminders of hope for me. That my God forgave me. He doesn't see me that way anymore. He doesn't see me as an adulterer. He doesn't see me as greedy and malicious and a liar. He sees me as forgiven and renewed and free. And my question is, what, what rocks are you carrying today? What guilt do you have in your life that you need to let go of today to walk free in this life. That's what Christianity is. It's hope. It's not a burden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me as we close this morning?